If you're vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be full of villainous opposition, and here's why. In this episode, we're finding answers to how do we write villains players don't just skip past? And how do we create intentional conflict that doesn't seem random and disjointed? And how do I, as a player, help my DM to write better stories for me? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. So I've been cleaning. Yeah, I've been watching. <laughs> Super helpful, by the way. Uh, I'm doing this because I feel like life is spiraling out of control, not only in the the general world, but in our house. The peace and harmony is is has been disquieted by a slow accumulation of mess. Yes, yes, fair that's... enough. <laughs> and so you're watching the slow unraveling of a man's psyche, and I need order in this chaos that is our house. And we were talking about how we just wish that with everything that we bought, we also bought somewhere to put that thing. Because <laughs> otherwise, this is what happens. A container. Yeah, I can dump everything out. Like right now, our D&D room is an absolute disaster of just all kinds of stuff that doesn't really have a home. Because we haven't been able to play D&D in person in a while. <laughs> so it's become a collecting ground. And it's all useful stuff. All of it is good stuff. None of it is junk. I just don't... I need a way to categorize and to put things into containers so I can contextualize it and make it make sense and then package it and put it away somewhere so it stops driving me nuts. And so, of course, we started thinking about how we can do this more in D&D in the stories that we write and the characters that we bring to the table. So, typical problem that we have both faced at some point in our D&D careers, is creating a villain that we thought was awesome. Like, just so rich and deep and evil. And maybe there's even side characters to that villain that you think are just going to be like, oh, this this person is into this stuff over here, and the villain's going to love that, or the character's going to hate that. or And then you introduce this villain, and the players don't take the bait. Yeah, They're just like, oh, we don't give a shit about that guy. Let's go over here. What's over there? I think the other problem that I run into is creating such a web of story that's unconnected. Like I've got all these ideas, but they have nothing to do with each other or the players or the characters. They're just neat ideas. <laughs> and I'm stressing over how I'm going to use any of them or if I'm just going to throw them all away. And from a player's perspective, this can really suck because it means that you're playing in a campaign that doesn't really feel like your character matters in it and that you could swap that character out with literally any other character and it really wouldn't impact the story all that much. Yeah, or sitting in that player's seat and watching your DM's sanity unravel as <laughs> sweating and stammering. and Yeah. So we've slogged through this before and our savior was the four-corner opposition method. And it's wonderful because it's four equal containers that can help clarify 
an entire campaign and all of the villains within it and make it more than just good guy meets bad guy. Yeah. But make it an in-depth discovery of the characters themes. Yeah, yeah. The characters themes in a way that you don't have to be a masterful writer. You just have to follow the steps and we craft, we end up crafting stories like we are not this smart. Not at all. (laughs) But we we look at it and go, this is good. How do we end up here? It wasn't us. It was the method. Some other people's ideas that we're using. (laughs) And the person's idea that we're using for this one, you may have heard of it before, but it actually comes from John Truby in his book, The Anatomy of Story. And so we're going to talk about this story method that is used in Hollywood movies and all kinds of different places where you will find stories come to life in the context of D&D. So let's head over to the strategy stateroom to start that right now. This is the strategy stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So the steps of this process are pretty basic. And if you've listened to our show before, you'll know that the first step is always know your characters. (laughs) So do that again. I think this just goes back to if I'm starting a campaign as a DM or even as a player, if I want that campaign to feel unique to the players and to the people at the table, I mean, this just goes back to a great session zero. Figure out your characters. Going back to one of our previous episodes where we were laying out characters and talking about who is their ally and who is their villain and what are their core beliefs and traits that make them unique. Then you create your main opposing villain. Then you'll you create a box and you put your characters, your party, in one corner of that box and you put your villain at the other corner. Then you create two more characters that fill in the two free corners. In the end, you'll have four characters that all oppose each other in meaningful ways. So let's go a lot deeper into that. And let's start back to the whole creating characters. So like you said, knowing their traits is one of the most important parts. What's unique about their personality? Usually we like to do the five traits. And an extra step here is to, once you've got all your characters, everyone's made their characters, try to find a couple of core values to that party. We did this in the past with our home game, where when we actually had all of our players make their characters, and players, you got to make good characters. You got to put the work in. Otherwise, the DM has nothing to work with. Yeah. However, all of our players started creating their characters using these five traits, and then a couple of really core values very quickly emerged within their characters, and one of them was family. And so we have an entire campaign that's built around family. And the second trait was selflessness. So then you've got these two values that your party has based all of their characters on. And you can kind of coach them into playing out those values in a lot more of a meaningful way. Making sure that your party likes those values and wants to play a game with those values. As the DM now, once that session zero is done... The characters have made these traits. The DM can sit down and look at all of their characters that are at the table, and they can look at all of those traits and determine those values really quickly. They'll come right out. And they'll also get kind of mixed in 
with the the kind of themes that the DM wants to explore too, because they're a player in the game as well. So then when you create that main opposing villain, we did a an episode on villains recently where we were just saying basically make them the same way you'd make any character, give them traits and and an interesting story as well. Mm-hmm. But with that main villain, you want to give them the opposite values of your party and directly opposed. Like you want that villain, whatever the the character's value in the case of our home game, that was family and selflessness. Well, now we know that the villain has to oppose that. They have to oppose uh, the family unit and they have to be selfish, incredibly selfish. And I can now that we've established that I know that that villain has to play that up at every opportunity. And that's going to make that villain irresistible to the rest of the players. Yeah, it means something as soon as you start toying with those in-game. The moment I introduce this character now, I know that if they pass this main villain on the street or something like that, the scene that I have concocted to describe to my players has to hit each one of those points and hit it really hard. And now it's candy it's irresistible (laughs) to those players do you want to get into our movie example yes because we always contextualize (laughs) uh D &D stories with movies that we absolutely love what is our among our favorite movie mad max fury road (laughs) (laughs) one of the greats uh like this movie the greatness of this movie can't be understated you know, anybody that says that it's just an adrenaline rush, a nonstop ride from start to finish with no real story, let's look a little bit deeper. This has a lot cooking. There is a great story under a very thinly veiled pure adrenaline rush. So if we consider those four quadrants, in one corner, we have our hero, and in the other corner, we have our villain. Our hero, Furiosa, because again, Mad Max is not actually about Mad Max. Yeah, love it. Furiosa has these values of being selfless. She's trying to save the women that come from a Morton Joe from a very horrible life. And she's also kind of powerless. She's just a cog in a machine. And so there's that, that theme of power that underlines the entire film. There's massive abuse of power on the other side, Mm -hmm. which is Immortan Joe, who's, yeah, he's got all the power in this world where the resources are gas and water, and he's got them in so much abundance. And he's also incredibly selfish with them, (laughs) clearly. (laughs) And a serious dickbag. And so we've got these, now we have our hero, and our villain. So in that far corner, we've really got our party. And it's those two traits that we're going to build a villain based on to oppose that. So then in the opposing corners. So Mm. we've got this grid, got four corners. Now we've got our hero and our villain figured out, but we need to fill in those other two corners. So how do we do that? Well, you, you create two more characters that have a similar value to the hero and an opposite value to the heroes. So they're kind of like a hybrid of hero and villain 
and those two kind of opposing values. In the Mad Max example, you've got Max in one corner there, and his values, he's got one in common with Furiosa in that he's powerless, and one opposite Furiosa in which he's selfish. He's just trying to survive. And then on the flip side, with the villain, you've got Max has being selfish in common with Immortan Joe. Then in the other corner, you've got Nux, who's a underling of Immortan Joe. He's one of the war boys. And a perfect example, Nux values power. He wants to please Immortan Joe. He wants to join the gods. He respects Immortan Joe. He's blind faith in power. But he's also selfless, as we discover. So what's really interesting about this is that our hero, Furiosa, comes into contact with Max first. And we have conflict there, despite the fact that they end up being allies. But there's initial conflict, and once Max does a little bit of character development, he starts to become more selfless with Furiosa. So that has been resolved. Then next, throughout the story, you've got Furiosa coming into contact with Nux. And now Nux is swayed away from power and looking to help the powerless. So there's all of this character development that happens just because we have aligned them in conflict with one another. And each of these characters is also in conflict with each other. It's not just about their interaction with the main hero because Max and Nux have some conflict along the way when Max is Nux's body bag. That happens before they even meet Furiosa. Yeah. And then, of course, they both have stuff going on with Immortan Joe. Nux's conflict with Immortan Joe is just that Immortan Joe doesn't give a shit about him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So throughout the entire film, there's all of these wonderful interplays between each one of these characters, and they all work so well in concert with one another because they've been built to facilitate that. So... In the case of all of your players bringing their values and their traits forward, now they've probably, if they're following our system of character creation, if you're using the downloadable PDF system for character creation that we put out for the Backstories from Backgrounds episode, there is a spot in there where you create both an ally and an enemy for each one of the player characters, which now me as a DM, if my players have actually filled that out, I can grab any one of those juicy characters that my my players have created from an ally or a villain. And start and assigning can, those values. Yeah. You can start putting them in there in a way that now all of a sudden my players going through the campaign go, holy shit, that's from my... Oh, that's my villain. <laughs> yeah. It actually feels beefy. And then you can even start blending the characters together and and working together. Like there's no reason that a couple of allies couldn't find their way to each other, especially if they have the same values. Yeah. That you've given them. (laughs) Yeah. So now all of these characters can fit into one of those three corners that oppose your players and they can be swayed one way or another. Maybe some of them turn evil and maybe some of them turn good based on all of your players' actions. And some other things that will kind of kickstart the rest of the game that you build are to make sure that you give each of them a different way to interfere with the character's goals. And I mean, it's pretty easy to do with those values. Well, and 
any one of the characters, like if one of my characters wants a magic sword, a particular named magic sword, nine lives stealer, let's say. Now I know that I need to make one of those villains oppose that goal. I mean, if we're if we're keeping it super simple, your character wants nine lives stealer. I'm going to use a dragon that's, hey, got nine lives stealer in his horde. Yeah. Nine lives stealer is currently being sought by a Maginet that is running an entire town and has a horde of adventurers that are being paid to go and look for it in opposition of my character. Nice. I'm. How can I possibly resist trying to go after that villain? I can't. I literally can't. That the the whole campaign is just laid out for me. I can see it very clearly. Yeah, in my head, starts coming together real quick. So let's try and actually put this into practice because we've used Wibble before. Yes. So let's let's flesh him out a little bit more. Can you give us a recap on Wibble and all of his kind of traits and values? Yeah. So Wibble is a friendly, creative, curious, naive hoarder. Those are all of his traits. And if you're curious, he's the gnome monk that I like to play. Yeah, we actually did a little bit of work on Wibble in the previous episode with Beth Ball. And in the villains episode before that. So in the villains episode, we kind of laid out a villain for him. You wrote down that he has an ogre that opposes him. Yeah. And in creating that villain, we just gave him the opposite traits. So he's an aggressive, simple, inflexible, world-weary, smashy villain. And by just simply and quickly looking at these two characters and how they're opposed, well, we can establish some values. So Wibble's values are peace and the collection of stuff. Because again, he thinks that having the right stuff will make a good life for himself. So very clearly, we've got these two great values that I can now use. And so... I have to put my ogre somehow opposing those. Very simple. Ogre likes to smash stuff. Potentially a major threat for Wibble. <laughs> if he's got... I mean, even in the in the previous episode where you were telling the story of Wibble, he when he sets up camp, he just kind of lays all of his stuff <laughs> out very <laughs> haphazardly and like, oh, this is very sensitive. Yeah, he's a mess. Anybody could just walk through and smash stuff even <laughs> accidentally. So he kind of puts it all out there. So now I've got an ogre that wants to smash stuff and is very aggressive and will always solve with violence. So perfect, perfect enemy for you. So then let's create two more characters that sit in the free corners. So I need another character that is going to align with Wibble's love of stuff, but is also going to be on the ogre's violent side for you to play off of. And I think in that previous episode, we actually talked about maybe the ogre having some kind of general, like a goblin, a more uh, beefier, intelligent goblin that works for the ogre. Yeah. And I think that's probably our best bet. Absolutely. So this goblin general, I'll give him a name. I'll look up some goblin name generator <laughs> online. But is... Korkenschme. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect goblin name is going to align with Wibble's love of stuff. Like, he's going to be just feverish for like, oh, yeah, I love stuff too. Yeah. And he's maybe even going to, like, when he's sent by the ogre to attack Wibble, he might even find 
that he doesn't want to attack Wibbler, wants to steal his stuff, or just respects him for his collection. Like maybe that's oh. what all of the goblins value is how much stuff they can hoard, and it's all just trinkets and garbage, which is exactly what Wibble hoards. So Wibble could even at some point when I discover that as a player, Wibble could appeal to that and say, like, goblins, don't you want a life full of stuff like me? I will lead you to the promised land of stuff. Well, and what's great is that now you as a player can take whatever avenue you want. Yeah. And there's so much richness and drama in there that you could solve it with violence, which adds conflict to your character. The goblins want to take it. So how do you solve this? Do you solve it with peace or do you solve it with violence? Either way, we've got some kind of character development. Yeah. And then from the goblin side, we've got character development based on maybe you're able to sway them by talking into a peaceful approach. Right. Now the goblin has changed. <laughs> There's just so many options that come from this. I was going to go down like three other paths, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of options. And yeah. then, okay, so we need something on the other side. So we need somebody who thinks that stuff is bad and is also all about peace. Right. This sounds like a good guy. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like your typical person that's in touch with nature and themselves and, well, some kind of hermit. Wibble's got a mentor of his own Okay. that he discovered when he came to the surface from underground as well. All right. Well, did your mentor originally have any kind of opposition towards stuff? Can I add that in there? Absolutely. So, yeah, that makes sense. He's he's a monk. He's a deep gnome monk. And now he's got a mentor that's like, dude, you need to get over your collection of stuff. Yeah. And now I've got more conflict to throw at your character. Your mentor is saying... Wibble, you got to chill the fuck out, man. Like, you can't just keep hoarding stuff. You've got a pig, you've got a cart, you've got a cart full of junk. This is a bad path. Yeah. That's leading you closer to... And that's going to give conflict between your mentor and you've got now character growth. And you've also got that mentor probably helping in different ways with the ogre problem. That's also true, yeah. Like, he could be trying to give resources or things of that nature... Ooh, or potentially he wants to see that the ogre is spared, taking that peaceful approach. So that's how he's aligned with Wibble. He always wants to seek peace. Yeah. And he thinks that the ogre can be taught peace. Right. That could lead to some kind of a finale where Wibble's having to make some tough decisions. Really tough. Uh, Because the ogre has just smashed half of Wibble's stuff. The ogre's about to smash the mentor, maybe. Does Wibble choose mentor, mentor's life, and kill the ogre? Or does he choose peace and let the mentor fall? It's so easy to now concoct different scenarios where these core values get tested all the time. Yeah. And you can just play in that space. You can keep doing it. You can throw, if one is resolved, you can throw another one in. Totally. And then at the end of all that, when you're trying to flesh out those characters, just just make sure those details are different as well. Like push them into those corners. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I'm gu- definitely guilty of this. If my players give me a character that, you know, oh, I've got a dead dad. It's like, well, uh, I can't use that. But your dad's now alive. Yeah. And maybe I'll tell you, maybe I won't. Something like that. But either way, 
I mean, I can nudge things as a DM into the right corners so that I can tell a better story, but I'm still using my players' characters that they created. They're not going to, they're going to forgive the fact that I made their dad alive because now all of a sudden the story is about their character. Yeah. I really love the idea of taking all three of the opposing corners to the party and seeing if I can maybe grab a mentor or a nemesis from each one of my characters' backstories and making sure that like I've grabbed one from each and now all of a sudden the whole story seems like it's involving half of the party very intricately, the ones that I found the most compelling. Yeah. As you kind of go down those paths, because what I run into sometimes is you've got one or two players that have really created a character and the others are still kind of struggling with theirs. But if you start going down the paths laid before you with the developed characters, then the other ones kind of flesh themselves out as they go. And by the time that happens, you can start involving their stuff and their values and characters. Totally. Yeah, I think my need for... My need for organization was dramatically appeased with this system (laughs) because I struggled so much with creating good campaign plot lines and stories just willy-nilly. Like, it was so hard to make it meaningful. Yeah. it It was off the top of your head. And sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad, but I didn't have a system to really make it always magic. Mm-hmm. Adding more goblins doesn't usually work. I've tried it (laughs) a lot. Well, I hope this helps, and you can download and try the four-corner method on Hook and Chance. If you want an actual visual guide for it. Yep. But either way, I think where this leads is we can all just rest a little easier mentally knowing that we can make some really tantalizing enemies that players won't just skip past the next time I introduce one. Which, of course, leads to great encounters. It's making everything matter. Villains that resonate, and it makes just the players feel like they created the story, and the story was created bespoke for them, rather than just running something out of a book. Uh, Swap, like, even if you are running a pre-written story, you can swap some of the characters' core values around yeah like i'm thinking of some of the the past campaigns that i've run where i haven't really been excited for a villain like the villain didn't really move me yeah but all i have to do is yeah just swap some of these values around now all of a sudden i have a i have a villain that actually opposes it even though it's a pre-written pre-written are great for all the details so use those yeah and players have to put in the work i know i said this earlier in the episode but If you're a player in a game, coming up with these traits and values are the start, the genesis of this entire system. It breaks down if you didn't do the upfront work. So the importance of player participation in this cannot be understated. So use it. Think about it. And now we're going to move on to our second segment, the Temple of Inspired Hands. This is the Temple of Inspired Hands, where amazing products and revolutionary ideas are brought to light. So there's a lot of really cool shit out there (laughs) related to Dungeons and Dragons, obviously. We struggled with this one. This one was tough. (laughs) There's so many amazing dice creators 
that we can't even begin to touch on them because we just see we see cool ass dice that we want every single day. And it's always neat to see like we've seen gemstone dice and then wood dice, ancient bogwood dice, and then mammoth tusk dice. Like what the fuck? <laughs> like anything that you can make dice out of, we've tried to make dice out of. Not personally. No. As as a whole, humanity's yeah. tried to make dice out of <laughs> them. Speaking as a D&D community, <laughs> as an emissary. But the reason we don't typically feature dice is because, yeah, you can make a set of dice out of whatever you want, but in the end, are they really all that different? They still function the same. I can only own so many. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that would disagree, <laughs> disagree with you on that one. On that core value? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only real blocker for you is how much physical space you have in your house. And money. You just turn it into a ball pit of dice. Yeah. Your whole house. So <laughs> our, our D&D room, you're going to submerge yourself in <laughs> dice? <laughs> Until you're just kind of floating like a hot tub? <laughs> nice. Well... What made us want to highlight these couple of things in this Temple of Inspired Hands was a couple of Kickstarters that one is current, one is still going, so you're going to have to hurry, and another one has concluded, but is in pre-order, so you can actually get this. Um, So they're actually fundamentally changing the way dice function. What's this, you say? Tell me more. Oh, yes. Well... Let's start with uh, the Kickstarter that just blew the goddamn doors off of (laughs) everything. You've probably heard of Wormwood before. They have created a lot of really cool Kickstarters, uh, dice, dice trays, lots of neat things. However, this one, and we're literally, as as we're recording this, we are watching the Kickstarter go up. And it's just like accumulating money constantly. It's <laughs> it's unbelievable how fast they uh, are succeeding with this Kickstarter. But what is the core of this thing? A different numbering system on the dice. It's kind of like an optional rule that you can use if you get these dice. And it's called high variance. And if you've never heard it before... It basically improves your chances to have huge successes or massive failures. It's kind of scary. I'm not sure I'm a huge fan. Like, I would want to play with these and see how it goes, but I'm a big fan of just, like, swinging for the fences. Totally. I think it works in certain games. In a heroic and kind of storytelling approach, it's probably pretty good. (laughs) But let's, let's get into what it actually is. So if you take a D6, normally it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 are the sides. The average of those sides is 3.5. On one of these high variance D6s, it's 113466 on each side. So it keeps the average the same at 3.5, but it gives you more wild results. Your likelihood of rolling a 6 or a 1 has literally doubled. Yeah. So, and they do that all the way up. They're also made out of beautiful materials, of course, and they look awesome. I mean, Wormwood is known for really high quality uh, wood products that are usually on the little bit of a pricier side. But what's really neat about this particular Kickstarter 
is they're also doing plastic dice. So those don't have a huge barrier to entry price-wise. So you better believe that we are ordering some high-variance dice. So check out their Kickstarter. That's Wormwood, and it's on Kickstarter right now. I think it's got about 11 days to go. And here's the other perk. If you don't tell anyone else that you're using these, you can call them your cheating dice. Don't do that. (laughs) Do not advocate for cheating at the D&D table. There is no quicker way to have an angry mob outside the house. So the second interesting approach to dice rolling is is, not rolling. (laughs) Is the literal antithesis of rolling. You just think of a number. And if you haven't come across this yet, it's pretty neat. It's called Mithril Armory, and they have a Kickstarter that has already concluded. They got over 124 grand pledged. They were 1,200% funded. So it's a base that sits on the table. The base has numbers that go around the outside edge. If If it's a D20, then let's just say it's 1 to 20. Yeah. Sitting on top of that is some ball bearings in a circle. One of them's colored differently. Those ball bearings spin, and whatever number they land on is the result. On top of those ball bearings is a large ball. That's actually what you use your hand to spin. And it's gunmetal, and it's sexy. It's a work of art, honestly. And it's just unique and interesting. Yeah. You put that on your table and you've got a, yeah, some some art that you use to roll dice, which is true of all cool dice, but fair enough. this is different. And one of the other cool things about it is that you need two of them to simulate all of your dice. One of them does your D20 and your D10, and it's just different rings of numbers. And then the other one does <laughs> every other thing else. Your D4, your D8, D6, D12. Yeah. So... Really neat system, and some of the benefits were pretty cool. Um, So this is another one that we're going to pick up. And what's so interesting about it is, like, A, I've got a jangling bag of dice wherever I go that is constantly weighing me down, and it keeps growing somehow. Even though I don't feel like I order a lot of dice, somehow that dice just that dice bag just keeps getting bigger. I think they reproduce and multiply inside the bag. <laughs> Additionally, you've got something that just like sits on the table. Like when was the last time you brought those sexy metal dice over and then you dented a friend's table? Uh, They're nice <laughs> very dining table. Very specific problems. Very specific. But some of the other things I've run into is like you've got your cramped playing space where or a small rolling surface the dice keeps falling off the table or you keep elbowing your friend because yeah because you've got a vigorous shake to your arm when you roll (laughs) dice we have a a custom built D&D table that has these little rolling mats built into it so that it kind of contains those dice however if we play literally anywhere else like when you go over to your friend's place to play and now all of a sudden you're rolling with no no actual dice tray or mat If you don't have one, now your D20 is across the room and it's on a crack roll and it's hard to determine what it was. Now the cat's got it. It's it's a mess. Your cat's turning it into something else. God, (laughs) what is that implying? (laughs) You figure it out. (laughs) Don't put that on me. Anyways, 
This Kickstarter is concluded, but you can still get one. They're taking pre-orders. Again, price, little bit of a premium. But like we said, it's art. These things are beautiful. Uh, so they're $60 a piece. So if you want something that will replace your entire dice set, you'd be uh, dropping about 120 bucks. But they're sexy. <laughs> and finally, something that solves such a specific problem in Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> that as soon as we saw it, we were like, we need it. Yeah. <laughs> we need it because it's ingenious. It's simple. Uh, this one is probably not going to be trending anywhere. It's going to quietly go funded. It's already been funded, but it needs to be more funded because holy shit, it solves a problem that has driven me nuts for so long. And this is only for when you get back to playing uh, D&D in person, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, with minis, which is how we play. Yeah. And what it is, is a base. It's a clear base that allows you to elevate a mini. But wait, I can do that with uh, with one of those simple uh, Chessex dice containers. Or I can do that with three potato chips. No, you can't. What? I can stack them and put the mini on top. Sure. Well, I have all of these different clear containers that I use to simulate a player's character flying and various heights. Now I have to stack the Chessex clear dice containers one on top of another to simulate, oh, this now I'm 30 feet high. All of these different intervals. Well, somebody came up with a brilliant idea of making a variable height stand that you can just clip a platform into a mini base hold your mini higher it's ingenious yeah i saw it and i was just like holy shit how have i never thought of this before yeah it just makes that visualization of the battle so much more clear well and when you have height variations of every five feet just like you have square variations horizontally vertically You've got the height, and that is so hard to achieve with just shit you have lying around your house. Yeah. It's also very inexpensive to get into because for just $9 US or 13 bucks Canadian, you can get two of those flying stands, which I don't even need more than that, I don't think, unless well, I'm doing some kind of horrid thing. I need 20. <laughs> no, no half measures <laughs> with you, huh? Yeah. All right. 20 it is but yeah very inexpensive kickstarter to back totally. and you're gonna get some stands in the mail how cool is that so brilliant kickstarter thought it was super cool pretty sure they're just being 3d printed uh but this kickstarter is still going and as of this recording or as of your listening to it you'll have 10 days left so get a move on well let us know, of course, if you decide to uh, follow any of those Kickstarters, back them. We want to see you using that cool shit, too. Yeah, you can always uh, tag us on Twitter or Instagram or something like that. Hopefully you got something out of the uh, Four Corner Opposition that we were talking about. Let us know how you're using that, too. If that improves your game, definitely. We want to hear about it. It's so cool when we can all kind of grow together. Yeah. And yeah, if you find it helpful... Let us know. What other revelations do you have when you use it? So thanks to Tabletop Audio for all the sound effects in this episode. 
You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and Reddit. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and let chaos reign! Game.